Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. Pray you bless us as we study your word and think about it, uh, especially help us to be open to learn and to grow, uh, to not grow weary in well-doing in our marriages. Uh, we've got uh, folks who are on the either side of marriage, that some who are not married yet, some who've been married a long time, and uh, folks in between, pray that you would apply your word to us in our situation and help us to uh, take it seriously and to be eager to uh, implement your word in our lives. Uh, grant your Holy Spirit to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, um, we're going to begin working our way through Ephesians 4, 24, uh, and then into, uh, excuse me, 4, 25, uh, into chapter 5, which specifically deals with husbands and wives and marriage and the roles that they play. Uh, but we're going to start here. So Ephesians, like a lot of Paul's letters, starts out heavy on the theology on the front end, and we've talked about some of that in the last couple of times we met, and then it begins to get into some of the more practical applications of that. Now, so before I read this part of Ephesians, starting in verse 25, uh, he's talked about the church uh, in chapter 4, the first part, talked about how Christ gave pastors and teachers and He's given the apostles and prophets, which is the Bible, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry or service. That's the broad picture. So if we think of it this way, he's starting out with the broadest work, and he's going to focus in and get down to husbands and wives and families and children and in very particular ways. So in the broadest sense, he says, uh, I've given you the church. The church's job is to teach you the Bible, uh, and to enable you to be equipped so that on the one hand you're not tossed by every wind of doctrine. There's all kind of notions out there, including notions about marriage, uh, that are not true. And so the church is there with the Word of God to help you develop a way of thinking about all kinds of things, but in this case, marriage, uh, <clears throat> and to help you grow up and mature, to change your thinking. All of us come into marriage with a package might be a good one, might be a bad one that we picked up from our parents, from the culture, from whatever's around us. We're not born knowing how to do this. In fact, we're actually born, uh, because we're sinners, uh, pretty good at not knowing how to do this. And so we're going to need some instruction and help. Now, if you had parents with a great, solid Christian marriage, that's certainly an enormous advantage to have that foundation, to have that example to have that training, but if you don't, then uh, you're going to need to change. You're going to need to grow and mature. And even if you had Christian parents, they didn't do it perfectly either. So you should be able to look at them and say, I want to keep some of what they did, and I want to improve on some things they didn't do as well as they should have. And if they're Christian parents, that's what they want you to do. They want you to do better than they did. So that's what we have in the first part. And then Paul says, uh, now, I don't want you to be like unbelievers. I don't want you to be like the Gentiles who basically live a feeling-oriented life. They just go with their gut. They, um, they are sensual. That means feeling-oriented. 
And they, that's how they go through life, is just in the moment, reacting to circumstances. He says, but you did not learn Christ in that way, if indeed you have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. So he's setting, as he often does, this contrast between the unbelieving approach and the believing approach. So, again, starting to focus in, and it's going to lead us up here to verse 25, which comes in uh, right after that. And so now having compared, don't be like the unbelievers. Here's what I want you to do. Now, one of my favorite Christian counselors, Dr. J. Adams, uh, calls this passage uh, the take-off-put-on dynamic. So Paul's going to basically say, I want you to stop doing certain things and I want you to start doing other things. I want you to take off one thing that's bad, that's not good, and I want you to put something in its place that is good. So we're going to talk a a, a bit here about habits, uh, developing good habits. Um, uh, Frequently as I talk with unmarried couples who are thinking about marriage, and I'll say, you know, we want to talk about developing little things like praying together and reading the Bible or, by the way, I just met with this young couple. Um, Don't get away tonight without me getting the books I said I was going to give you. I just remembered that. Um, So we want to develop good habits as early as we can because, frankly, the things you do the first six months you're married, you'll probably be doing 20 years later if you don't have a plan to change them. And even though you might not have liked the way your family did them when you were growing up, if you don't have a plan to replace that, when the, when the pressure's on, you will revert to def- and you'll default to the way your family did it in the heat of the moment. So you have to have a plan in order to overcome this, and that's what Paul's laying out for us. And so let me just read this, and we're going to come back and take a look at some of the details. Um, Therefore, and you know, when you see therefore, you're supposed to look and see what it's there for. And, and so the therefore here is a reference back to, I don't want you to live like unbelievers. I want you to live like somebody that knows Jesus and that is committed to his word and his truth. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So I'm, I think what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to, um, for now, uh, do a little bit of stream of consciousness from this text. Let's just take that. And now we could apply this in more broadly, let's say to the whole family, to parents and children, or to your neighbors or the fellow church members. But since we're talking about marriage and we happen to know that's where Paul is headed in this discussion when we get to the next chapter. So let's take that first phrase. Let each one of you... Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And it'd be hard to imagine neighbors who are any more members of one another than a husband and a wife. What does Genesis say happens when a man and a woman become husband and wife? What? Yeah, the two become one flesh. 1 Corinthians is going to say, when you get married, your bodies belong to each other. Her body belongs to him, his body belongs to her. 
these two who were two now become one. In what way? Well, in really in every way. If, they're, if they become one physically, that's really just a picture of what is supposed to be going on at other levels. They should have the same mission. God says to Adam, I want you to exercise, Adam and Eve, I want you to exercise dominion over the earth and I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with what? Godly children. I need the two of you to do this together. Here's the mission. I want you to come together on the mission. Primarily, husbands, that's your mission. Wives in submission, coming under that mission, joining in that mission. Together, I want you to give me godly children. Malachi chapter 1. So the coming, becoming one here, and when it says here in Ephesians, uh, let each one of you speak with his neighbor, uh, putting away lying, for we are members of one another. He's given the reason. Since you, it'd be like lying to your, if you lie to your spouse, you're not honest with your spouse, then you may as well lie to yourself. You're hurting yourself. That dishonesty, what does dishonesty in a marriage do? Or any, in any relationship, but in marriage? Trust. How important is trust? It's like the most important thing. So, trust uh, means keeping your promises. Doing what you said you would do. Uh, that's why we have vows in a wedding ceremony, is promises are made, witnesses are there. In fact, that's really the role of the wedding party. It's not just to wear fancy clothes and look good. They're actually there as witnesses to the vows. And hopefully, if they're your real friends, if they see you breaking those vows, they're going to come to you and say, hey, buddy, I heard what you said, that you were going to love her, and you're not acting like it. I'm going to hold you to your promise. So keeping your promise, what happens then if a trust is violated? Why, why is this so important? He said the two are one. A house can't stand if it's what? What did Jesus say? Divided against itself. How could a family, how could a marriage stand if it's lying to itself? If it's divided hiding things, not established on trust. And so what happens a lot of times in a marriage, you'd have somebody who says, I promise to be faithful. What happens then, uh, let's say I ask that wife or husband uh, five years into the marriage, do you think your husband or wife is cheating on you? No, they would never do that. Okay. Three years go by and he cheats on her. And he's repentant, and he gets forgiven, and they're restored. Can he get the trust back? Not easily. Can he get it back? No, yes, maybe. <laughs> All right, here's what I'd like to suggest. I think you can get, you can get trust back, but what you cannot get back is virgin trust. That virgin trust says, no, he would never do that. You can't say that anymore, right? No matter if he's truly repentant and you've truly forgiven him and you've been restored and maybe he's demonstrated he's trustworthy. How long does it take to lose trust? How long does it take to get it back? 
not, yeah. So trust, Paul says, okay, here's, as we get ready to think about a marriage, I want you to be sure you always tell the truth to your neighbor. Does that mean uh, if you're having a surprise birthday party, you can't lie about that? Yeah, that one's okay. Okay. Uh, there are justifiable lies in the Bible. Rahab lied uh, when they were hiding the spies because the people who came to her door wanted to kill those people and she was protecting the innocent and God commends her for having lied. And so do you uh, ever leave a light on at your house when you leave? Why? Huh? The kids do, but do you ever do that? Why? So you're lying. You're a liar. So that's a justifiable lie, right? Uh, We want the bad guys to think that we're at home so they won't break in and steal our stuff. What's that? That's true. And if you had the beware, what if you had a beware of dog sign? You had a beware of dog sign, but you didn't have a dog. Is that okay? Okay. Because you're some, so there are exceptions, but fundamentally, Paul is saying, I want you with each other because you're members of one another. And if this is going to have any hope of being successful and profitable and glorious, you're going to have to tell the truth all the time. No secrets. Then the next thing is an odd command in the Bible. Be angry and sin not. So here's a command. There's a recognition. There are some things you should be angry about. We should be angry about sin. When someone has sinned or done something they shouldn't do, we shouldn't be like, oh, well, whatever. It should disturb us. It should bother. When your children sin, it's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to sin. You don't get to say, well, I was angry and that's why I cursed you out. We're going to see that later in this text. I was angry and that's why I lost my temper. No, you can be angry, but you can't lose your temper. You can, in fact, he said, be angry, but don't sin. So that's going to mean you, as a married couple, need to plan for things that are going to upset you. If you've been married more than a week, you've been angry about something the other person did or didn't do, and you're going to be angry again, and they're going to be angry, and things are going to happen because you're sinners, and you're moody. And you're hard to get along with sometimes. So you know that's coming, right? What, so if you know a tornado is coming, wouldn't it be a good idea to have a plan what to do if a tornado is coming up the driveway and probably not wait until the tornado is on the driveway to say, now what do we do? You panic, right? You, don't, you, you might make foolish decisions, but if you know that, this, that there is going to be a conflict in your relationship. Why do you know that? Because you're sinners. So you know you married a sinner, you know you're a sinner, and you know therefore there is going to be conflict. 
If you if y'all cut up there on the back row, I'm gonna call you up here to the front. You sit next to him, I know what the potential is. If you know there's going to be conflict, then you need to have a plan for dealing with conflict. So be angry and sin not. What? Uh, how would you do that then? How would you prevent sin? It's first by anticipating where the problem areas might be. Be good to know what your temperament is, what your history is, right? How have you handled it in the past? Well, you might need some rules. I like to say this, make the rules on a sunny day, and then when the storm comes, you know what to do. You don't wait till the stormy day. You don't wait till the middle of an argument to say, now what do we do? Now you're engaged, and you're probably going back to your old habits, and you're not thinking very clearly, and you're upset. Uh, But if you have a plan ahead of time on the sunny day, honey, I love you, and I know you love me, Let's talk about the next time we might have a disagreement. What do you think some good guidelines, and and we're going to look at those here in the rest of this text, and I would suggest if you haven't done it, you need to have several rules of engagement. Here is what we can and cannot do when we have a conflict. Now, let me back up to previous lessons. We said marriage is what? What is the... What I said I would write something on the wall, if I could, of every household that said, we are a communion of love, a loving communion. That's what, that's what everything you do should be about. You're taking out the trash, cooking the dinner, making love, uh, dealing with the kids, having people over. Everything you do should be contributing to the positive formation of a community, a communion of love. And love means sacrifice, giving to others. So everything, now, all those things you do, like work and chores and raising kids and having people over, are stressful. And they can become the very things that disrupt the communion. Right? So... Uh, any couple that's been married for any length of time knows that if you had a quarrel uh, at five in the afternoon, things are probably not going to be that great in the bedroom at nine o'clock that night. That those are connected. Um, they should be because you're either in communion or you aren't. And it's not just in a moment, it's the overall picture. So if you bit your tongue at four o'clock in the afternoon, instead of saying that thing you used to say, chances are good that you're going to get through that and going to be in fellowship with one another and you're going to solve the problem and there's going to be other forms of communion that are still on the table. But as as long as there's broken communion, uh, then you can't have other forms of communion. So if everything's about that and For example, with work, work can take over, right? So the work becomes the thing you're doing, and now you're neglecting your wife or your kids or something. And there's always this need to come back and reevaluate and repent and make adjustments because the goal is this communion. All right, be angry and sin not. First thing he says is don't let the sun 
go down on your wrath. Has anybody ever been like angry for several days? Maybe quietly. Maybe you're not a shouter or a person that does that, but you're a powder. What's wrong? Nothing. No, what's wrong? I can tell something. Nothing. You ask about six times, and finally, well, I'll tell you what's wrong. So, in other words, they were lying. When they, remember he said, don't lie. And when somebody said, what's wrong? And you said nothing. That was a lie. Because you wanted them to ask you six times so you could really get worked up enough to let them know. Right? So here's, how might you handle that if you're dealing with somebody who, that's what they do. They clam up. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to pout. I just want to let you know how bad you hurt me. So you, if you're the one that did the hurting and they're pouting and they told you when you asked them if something was wrong and they said nothing, why don't you just say, okay. How long do you think it's going to take before they speak up and let you know that actually there is something wrong? Now, it might not be in the moment, but it might be 10 minutes. It'll be pretty soon. So in other words, you're kind of forcing them to be honest. Now, the text says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I do believe one of the rules that's really helpful, and sometimes, what happens sometimes, maybe you're this way, where one of you says, I want to talk about it, and I want to talk about it right now. We need to get this resolved. I don't like this hanging over us. And somebody says, no, I don't want to talk about it right now. So we have this difference of style and how we handle conflict. And so... A good compromise might be a rule that says anybody can ask for a timeout. Because why? Because I don't want to sin when I'm angry. And if I talk right now, I'm going to sin, or I'm likely to sin. I'm likely to lose my temper or say something I shouldn't say. I need to cool down. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I say, as a general rule, that's true. Sometimes there are circumstances where that's not possible. So, for example, you're, you have a quarrel in the car on the way to church. Um, here's what I recommend you do. We're not going to get this resolved in the parking lot, and we're not going to turn around and go back home and stretch this out. We're going to go in and worship God, and we're going to make a commitment to each other that this afternoon we're going to sit down and get this resolved. Yes? That's true. Well, right. Well, part of coming to the table is to remind you that God's here and you're having your... And, as you said, you can't have communion. You actually, somebody could say, well, how do you have communion with God if you're at odds with your wife? Well, if you're just at odds with your wife or your husband and you haven't made a commitment to resolve it, but that's why I'm saying, I would say in the parking lot, look, we're not going to get this resolved right now. We're both upset. Let's go bow before God and get our hearts right with him. 
and then come deal with each other the way we should. Does that help? So I'm generally agreeing that's a good rule, but then there might be exceptions. The company's just pulled up in the driveway, okay? Uh, and we just had a quarrel over something you were supposed to have cleaned and you didn't. Um, so, but the, back to the, the clamming up or wanting to talk right now, one of the rules that I think is really helpful is to say anybody can ask for a timeout, but you don't get infinite time. Why? Because the text says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, what if it's, you know, sundown is 7.05 and it's 7 o'clock and something just happened? Does that mean you have five minutes? Well, hey, if you can do it in five minutes, go for it. What if it's, um, you know, 7.10 and the sun went down at 7.05, do you get 24 hours? Don't be that literal with this text. uh, It's just saying in a metaphorical way, this should be dealt with quickly. Don't drag this out infinitely. Obviously, every quarrel is different. Some are over little things. Some is because I I, I got two hours of sleep last night and I'm a grump. And I shouldn't be talking to any human being right now. Okay? Um, So just give me some, let me get a nap first, and then we'll talk. So here's here's a rule. You can have a timeout, but you have to say how much time. I need five minutes. I need an hour. I need two hours. Hey, it's midnight, and we've been talking for two hours, and we're not getting anywhere. I love you, and I want to resolve this. We need to get some sleep. We got to go to work tomorrow. Let's talk in the morning. Anybody can ask for that. And if you've agreed to these rules ahead of time on the sunny day, even though you really want to resolve it right now, you say, okay. Not what I want, but it's what we agreed to. Now we're going to deal with the other side of this in a minute. Paul is. Yes, sir. I do. You just weren't listening. (laughs) I can even create some new quarrels tonight. Okay, so let's go back to our text. Don't let the sun go down in your anger, um, on your wrath, nor give a place to the devil. Have you ever given a place to the devil? If, if your marriage is supposed to be representing Christ and the church to the world and to you and to God, then if you were the devil, where might you go to work? I think I'll sow a little discord here between these two who are supposed to be one, who are supposed to be representing Christ and the church, so when we have this quarrel or we're, we're pouting or we, we are bitter and we're kind of always you know, rubbing each other the wrong way and that kind of thing, then the devil is getting a foothold. We're going to find out over in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in uh, 2 Peter where, Paul, uh, where Peter says that if, if we're having conflict, uh, we are... Our prayers are hindered. If, if I'm not right with my wife, I cannot be right with God. God's paying attention. 
And so if I'm, so I see people who have serious marital issues that are ongoing, but they'll act like, oh, everything's fine with me and God, but it's not. Because God requires that we manifest our love for Him in how we love our neighbors. If you say you love God whom you have not seen, Peter says in 1 Peter, but you don't love the one you have seen, that can't be. So that's a, that would be, a con- the Bible says, if someone says that, yeah, my wife and I don't speak to each other very much or we fight all the time, but I'm okay with God. I'm, me and Jesus are just fine. That's not true. So in having an unresolved conflict, in letting the sun go down over and over and over on your wrath, you are giving a place for the devil. What are your children learning when that happens? What? Yeah. Hey, this is normal life, right? This is how it's supposed to be. Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. So remember, love is about self-sacrifice. Maybe there's a... We're going to see in a minute where it talks about having grace, which assumes that there was an offense, because grace is ill-deserved favor toward the other person. So, yes, maybe... Let me give an example. Somebody didn't get much sleep and they're grumpy and they kind of snapped at you. Do you let that go knowing that they've had a hard day and I could make a deal out of this, but I should just let it go? And the real question is, can you let it go? You should. You should make an effort to do that in many cases. I'm glad that we're not confronting each other about every little thing all the time. So grace... Ill-deserved favor should be extended to each other on a regular basis, and if you can let it go. But here's the tricky part sometimes, is people say they let it go, but they didn't. They're saving it. They might let it go today because the real reason they're, quote, letting it go is they just don't want to bring it up and have that discussion because they might bring up something about you. Uh, And right now, I don't want to have a fight. I'd rather go watch TV. And so maybe we'll just sweep it under the rug. Uh, One counselor I listened to years ago, probably 30 years ago, he said, we all carry this invisible gunny sack um, and we put every offense in it and we carry it and we carry it until it finally gets too heavy or we have a big fight and then we drop it and we empty it. We pull out everything that's in there. Well, yeah, I remember two weeks ago you did this. So I didn't let it go and I didn't cover it with love, I saved it up for when I thought I might need it. It was ammunition. It was an ammo dump. Um, So uh, I remember one time I I was having a conflict with somebody and I told a friend, well, like Paul says, I'm just going to be wrong. And he said, okay, then just be wrong and don't tell me I'm just going to be wrong. Because now you're not just being wrong, 
you're telling me how wronged you were and what a good person you are for being wronged. It's a lot harder sometimes to do what the Bible actually says to do here. So covering it means really covering it. I ain't bringing it up anymore. Remember, forgiveness is a promise that I'm not going to bring it up anymore. It's not a feeling. I'm not going to bring it up to God. I'm not going to bring it up to you. So let's say that person said, will you forgive me? And you said, yes. And what you're saying is, I promise I'm not bringing it up anymore. I'm not holding it against you. It's off the books. It's paid for. If I say, well, they didn't ask for forgiveness. They probably should have, but I'm going to cover it. Again, it's like they had a debt, and you knew they had a debt at, at the store, and you went down, and you just paid it. And you didn't say anything to them, or you didn't make a big deal out of it. But you just paid it. But that's what covering it means. I covered your debt. I think you owe me. But I love you, and I know you had a hard day, and I'm just not going to make it worse by turning this into, I'm not going to turn a deal into a big deal. I'll just pay for it. And it's really paid for. See what, you see that? Well, I, I think you can. Well, I think it depends on what level we're talking about. These things are a little more complicated. There's not a fast formula. But I would say this. I might say, I'm going to try to cover this honestly, pray about it. And depending on how urgent it is, I realize that don't let the sun go. Again, that's not a literal thing. Uh, For me, it's kind of a two or three day thing. If it's still eating on me or if it's affecting the relationship, um, then you need to go ahead and deal with it. Say, hey, I need to talk with you. I've tried to let this go, but it's still really eating on me. Maybe it's me. And we'll talk about how to be humble in the way you approach somebody who's offended you. Well, well, it sounds like y'all going to get to practice these things a lot when you get home. Um, all right, let's move along here. Um, uh, so we're not going to give a place for the devil because the devil gets a foothold and he builds on that. So now you got this gunny sack full of stuff and offenses and bitterness is starting to build up and, and he wants to keep adding to that. He wants that debt load to increase to where you finally get to the point of this is too much. We, we, have, we have offended each other so many times that it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's like a student loan. It's just never going to go away. Um, it's a pet. It's part of our system, and the devil loves that. Because now you can end up there where you just got this couple that, yeah, they're married, they're not divorced, but they really don't like each other very much. They kind of function because it, you know, somebody's got to do the dishes, and somebody's got to take Johnny to the store. and You know, you, you, you can end up with this kind of functional thing, but it's not a Christian marriage. All right, then he says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Now, I think this particular verse doesn't have as much direct application to marriage, except that I would say this, selflessness is critical to marriage. I mentioned you should have, whoever you marry must love God, must, must be kind, and must be diligent or work hard. And I would put that in this category. In terms of applying this particular verse to marriage, I'd say this is somebody who doesn't, who's not selfish, who's not taking what is not his or hers, but is giving, but is laboring 
so that they have something to give. That's what love is. And if you have two people doing that toward each other and toward their family, then you're going to be promoting communion. But if you're selfish, if you're sneaking around, if you're kind of not telling the other person how you're spending the money or um, you're not doing your job, you're lazy, that's a form of stealing, right? In fact, by the way, I think, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I thought about this a bit, I think all sin is a form of theft. It's taking something that's not yours. It could be somebody's honor, the name of God. It could be somebody's wife. It could be somebody's things. It's taking something that wasn't yours to take. That's what sin is. So it's so stop stealing and start working so that you have something to give to other people. Stop living for yourself and start giving to others. Uh, <clears throat> then now, here's where we're going to really get into communication. The word communication sounds like another word we've talked about tonight, which is what? Communion. Common union. Community, right? Another word that's very, very similar. Those are all, we can put those together. You can't really have communion. You can't really have a community if you don't have communication. We learn to communicate here at church on Sunday when we talk to God and he talks to us. We practice that every Sunday morning in worship. There's a conversation going on, a communion, a community. And so likewise, in your marriage, there has to be communication. And we're not going to go into a lot of details, but I think there's a powerful amount of instruction here in this text. So let's start with, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Let's talk about two things. What does the word no mean? How many corrupt words are you permitted? Zero. So we got the the math, right? So what is a corrupt word, Mariana? Give me an example of a corrupt word. Cussing. Foul language, right? What's another corrupt word? Another form of corruption. What? Name calling. What else? Somebody else said something. What? Okay, just snarky kind of, you know, your mother, you know, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. Um, What else? Accusative. How about yelling? Tone. Right? How about sarcasm could be unwholesome? Some, of, some people have made that an art form. It's a, it's, a, it's a gift that can be easily abused, right? So zero corrupt words. And, and what he's going to do is he does. He's going to take that off and we're going to put something in its place. And so he says, let no corrupt word, zero corrupt words proceed out of your mouth. Now, might you think them? You might, but that's where they stop. You're probably going to need to change your thinking too. But 
If that thought comes in your head, it may not come out of your mouth. In fact, what I want to do is learn to turn the fire down, not turn it up. Not throw gas on the fire. What if they just said something ugly to you? Well, let's pause a minute. The Bible has other things to say about this. What does it say? When someone curses you, what are you to do? Bless them. Man, that Bible's pushy. Yeah, you mean I can't just shut up or bite my tongue? No. It says, when, don't return insult for insult, but a blessing instead. Now, does that mean a sarcastic, snarky blessing? Well, bless your heart. No. It's a real blessing. Yeah, but that's impossible. Well, it is if you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you're not under the control of the Spirit, turning the other cheek when you just got whacked is impossible unless the Holy Spirit enables you to do something supernatural. So blessing those who curse you, uh, turning the other cheek, not returning insult for insult, but a blessing instead. Now, do you think that's going to help the situation? Or do you think coming back with a string of expletives will actually improve the situation? Or yelling, or stomping your foot, or slamming a door, or which is going to help? Aren't, didn't you get married to help each other? And remember, the two of you are one. So when you hurt the other person, in fact, Ephesians 5 in a minute, and not, probably, we may not get there tonight, but husbands, the man who loves his wife loves who else? himself. So when you use unwholesome words or unhelpful words or damaging words, when you tear somebody down, you are not helping the situation and you're not helping your situation and you're not serving the communion of love that is your family. You are sowing and the devil is getting a big foothold. Just learning to shut up and bite your tongue. And again, here's the hard part. People can do that sometimes, but they still want to project body language and an attitude that is either, you know, I really want to say something right now, but I'm going to bite my tongue because I'm holier than you. That's not what we're talking about. Bible, that's, that's missing the point. Oh, man, this is super hard. Yeah, it is. That's why you got to grow. That's why you got to be sanctified. You got to be holy. You got to be like Christ. This is where it matters. If you don't do it here, doing it with, with company doesn't matter. It's easy to do it with company. You know, if company says something or does something aggravates you, you, you just smile. I'll be glad when they're gone. And you may talk about them when they leave, but you're going to be polite while they're there. Because you know if you, if you talk to most people the way you talk to your spouse, you might get shot. Uh, you certainly wouldn't have very many friends. Sometimes we're most abusive to the people we're closest to because we know they have to put up with us, or we think they do, and sometimes they stop. So let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. So we have a rule at our house, no corrupt words, no yelling. Have I ever yelled, Rachel? I so. Yeah. I have gotten... Um, I would say this, it was pretty rare at our house. I have yelled at the dog. Um, yelling, 
I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm a sinner. I'm not excusing myself here. I'm just saying that's not my particular temptation most of the time. Now, does that mean you can't ever say, I said get up right now and do this? I'm not counting that. That's not yelling. That's being authoritative. Okay. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a, and it wasn't unwholesome word. No, none of that. Um, never foul language, never anything of that nature. Okay. And that's, that should never be tolerated in any direction in a, in a household. Uh, but back to this text. Only what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. What is edification? What? Building up, uh, the edifice of a building is the, you know, the front of the building or whatever, but the ed- to edify is to build up. As, what's the opposite of that, Isaiah? If you're not building up, what are you doing is the opposite? Tearing down. So you're not going to tear each other down. You're not going to use words that put the other person down, makes them feel stupid or, or, you know, puts them in that kind of an embarrassing situation where you're treating them like dirt rather you're going to use words that do the opposite of that that edify does that now so here your spouse is doing something incredibly stupid or sinful and so you're going to say sweetheart i'm so proud of you i just want to encourage you no you don't not if they're being stupid not if they're being sinful that, that's not building anybody up. That's not helping anything. There's where you say, honey, I need to talk to you, but we need to talk alone. I don't want to say anything. I'm not going to do this in front of other people. But come here a minute. Do you realize how you sounded just now? How sarcastic you were? How... I love you, and I'm not saying this to be mean to you. These are not unwholesome words. These are edifying words that are necessary in this moment. Now, sometimes the words that are necessary in a moment are, hey, I want to encourage you here. I know you had a hard day, and I love you, and I'm praying for you. It can be that, but it can also be, you know what? You just really acted like a jerk. I'm not telling you that to be mean. I'm not name-calling. I'm coming to you because I'm your helper, and I love you enough to tell you the truth. So you can say earlier in Ephesians 4, Paul says we're to speak the truth in love. Can you speak the truth not in love? Okay. Some of you have heard this story. I know Marinelle's heard it a thousand times, but I had a professor in college, and one day he was lecturing. It was a solid podium. I was kind of sitting over here. Other students were here, and I noticed that his zipper was down. Older man, Dr. Lawrence, it was a three-hour class, and he always took a smoking break in the middle. So when, when the break, smoking break came up, I kind of got up there quickly, and I just kind of was behind him, and I said, Dr. Lawrence, your zipper's down. I spoke the truth in love. I could have, sitting in the classroom, hey, Dr. Lawrence, your zipper's down, which would have been true, but it wouldn't have been very loving. It been embarrassing. By the way, he told a joke as soon as I told him that. He says, you, you lose your memory in three phases. First, you can't remember names and faces. Second, you forget to pull your zipper up. Third, you forget to pull it down. And he said, I'm just in, I'm just in phase two. So, 
speaking the truth, uh, and only what is good, only what is good for, and for necessary edification. Is this necessary? That's a good question to ask. Is what I'm about to say necessary? Sometimes it is. A lot of times it isn't. You ever, have you ever said something where you thought, that, that really wasn't helpful? Or the other person said something to you and you thought, that really wasn't helpful. That just opened up a new can of worms. And we hadn't closed the last can of worms that we were in the middle of. So stop and think before you speak. That's a good time to say, you know what, I think we both better take our little time out here and take 10 minutes to pray about this. And by the way, that's the other, another rule we have is anybody can ask for prayer. Now, if you're not in the habit of praying, that's going to feel really weird. But if you've gotten in the habit of praying and a quarrel is starting to happen and somebody says, can we pray about that? Then what does that do? Why would that be helpful? The tone, why? What did you say, Asher? Well, that's right. Suddenly God's brought back into the pit, even though he was there the whole time, right? But I may have forgotten for a moment. But right now I've been reminded that God is present and I better watch my heart, my mouth, and everything else. So, is it necessary? Do I need a little time to think? Is this helpful? Am I turning the fire up or down? Am I adding gas or water here? And then he says that it may impart grace to the hearer. And remember, grace is, it means ill-deserved favor. So there's an assumption here in this quarrel that the other person might have done something they shouldn't have done. And you're going to impart ill-deserved favor. Yes, I could say these ugly things. Yes, I could really have a zinger here. I could really stick the knife in and twist it, but I'm not because it's not helpful. And I love this person. I'm trying to help this person, not hurt this person. I'm trying to build up this person, not tear down this person. So some of the rules, you can ask for a timeout. You can ask for prayer. No unwholesome words, zero. There's three rules right there that everybody ought to have. And when you have a rule, what that means is, men, it's because you're the head of the house. In fact, what that means is you ought to be the best example of it. And when your wife says, honey, um, you're yelling and, you, and we said that we wouldn't do that, your response should be, you're right. I'm sorry. Now let's continue our conversation. Not, don't tell me what to do right now. Don't, in other words, don't add, now can you do that? Yeah, you can. And then you're just not obeying God and the devil just got a foothold and you helped him. You carved out a big foothold there. All right, we're going to take a break and go have some refreshments and we'll come back and deal with the rest of this text and uh, go from there. You're dismissed for a few minutes. All right, let's uh, let's start back here. Andrew wanted me to address the sarcasm issue further, and so let me just start by saying sarcasm is a form of intellect and humor, 
and can be used to great effect for many good purposes. And so I would encourage it. It is uh, it's a good exercise of how to see things in a different light. But like everything, like hammers, I have several hammers, and they're really useful. Uh, but they're not all that useful for repairing teacups. Um, and so sarcasm is like having a, a good hammer. Um, it is useful uh, for many good things, but don't try to... Yes, and yes. If if your husband or wife is a teacup, and uh, don't use the hammer. All right, that help. Okay. <laughs> Get over it. I'll, should I should I should I quote the rest of the lyrics from uh, the Eagles that I quoted this morning? I stopped short. You. What's that? Okay. Well, I stopped short. You can look it up yourself. It was not appropriate for me to say it this morning. Who knows what it was? Marinelle does. It was about, you know, get over it. You know, you, you, a victim of this, a victim of that. Your mama's too thin. Your daddy's too fat. Remember that? The last line I didn't say. I'll say it here because this is all adults, right? The Eagles say, I'd like to find your inner child and kick its little ass. I think it starts out by saying a whole lot of bitching, and I forgot the last part. I could look it up, and then I'd like to find your inner child and kick its little ass. So you must have a very gentle, fragile inner child, right? (laughs) All right. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let me just maybe paraphrase that and say it makes God sad when you and your spouse are not in communion with each other. It grieves God. That's why you couldn't possibly be right with God if you're not right with your spouse. So where, where might you start if you're not? Uh, is there some cleanup that needs to be done? Is there some repentance? Is there some owning of things? Sometimes there's so much in the gunny sack, it's hard to go back and deal with every detail. But at least dealing in a general way with, you know, I think I have not done a good job in this, and I really want to try again. I know we've tried before, uh, but you know what? This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I'm not... God, God must not be finished with you yet because you're still here. And he has you here for one reason. Uh, as R.C. Sproul said once in a series, God's not nearly as concerned with your happiness as he is your holiness. So he wants you to keep on trying and moving forward in becoming Christ-like. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who is at work in you to do that. And when you're fighting with your spouse and not communicating and not having communion, then the Holy Spirit is grieved about that. I don't know how that works exactly with God, but it's here. It's true. I don't have to understand it all to believe it. And so then he goes in now with a bit of a list And this is finishing up uh, here, chapter 4. Let me... uh, Let 
Yeah, and then we'll go a little bit into chapter 5 and we'll stop tonight. So let so since you everything we said, no unwholesome words, only words good for edification, uh, giving grace to the hearer, uh, helping the situation. And that's why I'm going to come back. The practical application to this is make some rules about time out, about prayer together, about no unwholesome words. And that, see, under no unwholesome words, there could be no, no nasty looks, no sticking out your tongue, no cursing, no yelling, no throwing things, no slamming doors. Um, yes, you can have a time out, but you cannot walk out. You can just go jump in the car and go somewhere. Not that I've ever done that. Yes. Yes. Well, yes and no. The the agreement is the rule. You make the agreement over what the rule is on the sunny day. All right, let's talk about this. We have different styles. We have different ways of doing things. And so you're both going to have to give some. Um, so let's negotiate that. What does that look like for us? Uh, I would suggest, again, anybody can ask for a timeout, but they can't. It's like you don't get to abuse these things. You don't get to say, well, I know timeouts really aggravate you, so I'm going to pull the timeout card. Um, see, that would be wrong. Okay? But if you genuinely need time because you want to think, now if you need time to pout, then that's not acceptable. It would be like somebody saying, I need time to get worked up more so I can really let you have it. He said, no, you don't get timeout to get worked up more. You get timeout so that you can be more godly. If you need time out so that you can walk around with your lip poked out and let me know how upset you are, if that's the purpose, then the time out, that's not the purpose of the time out. The time out is to say, I'm a person that needs to either settle down because I may blow up and I don't want to blow up. So this text says don't clam up and don't blow up. Don't let the sun go down your anger, okay, on the one hand, so don't clam up. But don't let unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Don't blow up. So you need time out because I need time to think. Sometimes when somebody says, what's wrong? And they say, I, instead of saying nothing, say, I don't know. Or I'm not sure. Or I can't articulate it. Or I'm afraid if I talk right now, I'm going to say something I shouldn't say and it'll make things worse. I need a few minutes to gather my thoughts, to pray about it. So that then you sit down and say, okay, I've thought about it. There are three things that I think I'm having a problem with. If you can enumerate, that's great. Why? And I like to start a conversation that way. If it's just one thing, say, it's really just one thing. It really bothered me that you uh, took for granted what I did today. And, and you just went past it and didn't say thank you. That's, th- that's it. But if it's three things, start the conversation by saying, I thought about it, and there are three things that bothered me here. Why? Because you're not making it up as you go. You've, you've thought about it, now you can identify it. And I think that's really helpful. And now they're not all equal, necessarily. I'm going to deal with the worst one first. Number one, this is the main thing that bothered me. But there were also that look, in your, that look you gave me. Um, I didn't give you a look. Well, maybe you didn't, but it looked like you gave me a look. <laughs> um, and that bothered me. Um, and again, it's not all just about being bothered here. I keep saying that, but it, the more objective you can be about sin, what is sin? You good Presbyterians know the answer to that. 
right? Did y'all catch that? Andrew, say it. Why you? Because I don't like you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Another way to put it in common language is not doing what God said to do or doing what God said not to do. That's sin. So if you can articulate your concern in terms of sin, well, i tell you what's really eating on me is you yelled at me, and the Bible says don't do that. That was an unwholesome word. Okay, there's something to repent of, right? You're right, I'm wrong, I should not have yelled. But if they say, I don't think I yelled, I just raised my voice. Well, look, you're going to have disputes. Give all you can plus 10%. Own all you can, plus 10%. You know what? I didn't mean to yell, but if it came across as yelling, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I'll try to be more careful. Now let's talk about, yeah. No. Yeah, well, again, I said own all you can. That would be the things you absolutely realize, yeah, she's right. Plus 10% means I want to be charitable uh, to her uh, in this situation, which means, well, maybe I don't think I technically yelled. Or, uh, I, In other words, we have a different perspective on what just happened, and I'm willing to bend in her favor. That's grace. But now, if, it, if you just absolutely didn't yell and you think this is a false allegation, I'm not suggesting you confess to things you didn't do. There are times when you're going to disagree and you just have to agree to disagree. But you know what? I don't... Yes, Ashley. Yeah, I would probably use a little different wording. Oftentimes when someone says that, you just turned around and made it their fault. You know, I'm sorry that I'm sorry if you think I did something wrong. What I just said is you're the problem, not me. And I'm really sorry that you are so stupid as to think that I did something wrong because I didn't. Now that's that's not necessarily what you're saying. I think there's a better way to say it. I think there's to say I realize how it sounded and what I intended might be different things. And so I am really sorry if it came across that way. That was not what I intended. And I will really try to work harder to not open up the opportunity for it to be interpreted that way. Does that see how that's a little better? I'll give you another little tip. Don't use personal pronouns. This I learned from Jay Adams too where he said, you make, it make, you make me mad when you slam the screen door. What, what do you think that person's going to say? Sarah? Yeah. But what if you said, you know what, it really bothers me when the screen door slams. You see, when you use a personal pronoun, you're automatically, the person gets defensive. I have to, def- you just attacked me. You made me a bad person. And so, Maybe that person didn't slam the door. What they did is, now, this is old school for all you young people. I grew up, the screen door was a wooden door that had a spring on it. And every time you went out, 
if you didn't hold it and let it close, it whack. And I remember my mother saying, stop slamming the screen. A few times my mother yelled. One of them was, stop slamming the screen door. I'm not. You are. The spring did it. Yeah. All right, honey, I would like for you to not allow that spring to slam the screen door. Could you help me with that? It would really make my day a lot better, and we would probably do better too. There are always, almost always better ways to say something and communicate it in a way that's helpful. Again, don't be, I'm not being silly about it. I'm trying to have some fun, but I'm trying to get you to look and think about how something might sound and better ways to say things. When you sit down and say, I think we are having a problem instead of you, I need, I need to talk to you. You, and you start with you, you're probably not going to get very far. If you start with we, we're having a problem here. Maybe we're misunderstanding each other. Maybe we're not. Because if we're not, we're having one kind of problem. <laughs> and if we, if we are misunderstanding each other, let's talk about that. Because sometimes it's a verbal dispute, right? You know what a verbal dispute is? You remember that from law school? Can you articulate it? So when Marinelle says, I'm freezing, and I get up and go look at the thermostat and say, no, you're not. It is only 60 degrees in here. We have a verbal dispute. We're about to have another kind of dispute. <laughs> If what she means is, my toes are really cold, then we actually agree on the definition of freezing. If we mean 32 degrees Fahrenheit, then we have a different. And so sometimes in a court, we'll stipulate freezing means cold toes. Can we all agree on that? Okay, now when we say I was freezing, we all know what we're talking about. So there are many times a verbal dispute where we're, we're talking past each other. We're using different language or we're making assumptions. That never happens, does it? Um, so that's why communication is so critical. Now he's going to turn into this. Uh, he says, by, so don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Remember what this is about is your redemption. You have been bought back out of sin and you've been called to this marriage to show the work of God's redemption. And that's why the Holy Spirit is grieved when you mess it up, when you, when you stir the pot and you create conflict and no communion, is redemption isn't taking place. You're not becoming like Christ. You're becoming like unbelievers. So remember why we're here. God gave me this woman to make me more like Christ. And that's not always easy. And I know it's not always easy for her, but it's not always easy for me when she's doing what she's supposed to do, and sometimes she's not doing what she's supposed to do. She's aggravating me, not that she does it very often, but, sweetheart, but even then God's using that to sanctify me, to find out how I respond. I don't get to say, well, the woman you gave me, you know, if she, she did this and this, and that's why I lost my temper. No, you are answerable to God. You do the right thing even if the other person isn't. Like when they don't mute their phones. And... All right, let's wrap this up here. Let all bitterness, how much? 
All of it. Just like no unwholesome words. Do you have any bitterness anywhere? What is bitterness? Bitterness is when you hold on to an offense. That's that gunny sack full of bitterness. You nurse it. You feed it. You fertilize it. It's like a plant, the Bible says. Let no root of bitterness springing up which defiles many. Bitterness has a root and it's nursed and every one of us have to wrestle. But bitterness, remember, is my sin. It's not the other person's. They may have sinned against me and that might be what I'm getting bitter about. And I should go talk to them and they should perhaps repent of their sin and I could forgive them and that would resolve that. But what if they don't repent? What if they don't think they yelled and you think they did and they won't admit it? Do I get to be bitter now? Do I get to hang on to that and nurse that? Yeah, well, they wouldn't say they were sorry. And so now I'm going to ruminate on that like a cow and its cud. I'm going to chew it. I'm going to think I'm driving in the car. I get worked up. And I think about how mad I was and how, how, how much they hurt me. And I'm just working this and working this. And then something else happens three days later and I add that to the, the fertilizer. You know, it's the manure that I throw in there to make sure it's real healthy bitterness, right? Robust. What happens over the years if you don't deal with bitterness? It builds up. And it, it will kill you and kill everybody else. And if you ever met a, a really bitter old person, you don't want to be around them. They're bitter about everything. It just oozes out. And then you ask a bitter person, you say something about their bitterness, and they tell you, I'm not bitter, but you can see it on their face. It's just, it's there. It actually starts to show up physically. So he says, Christian, you want to be Christ-like. You didn't learn uh, you, you didn't, you're not living like Gentiles, remember. You're living like Christians who learn Christ, who've committed to following Christ. Let all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Boy, that is a quite a list. He's trying to hit it from every angle. Malice is when I want to get even. Another big problem in marriage is scorekeeping. You hurt me, I can hurt you right back. Watch. That's malice. I'll, I'm going to push your buttons because I know, I'll see couples do something like this. They're having a dispute over whether we're going to buy carpet. He says no because he's a cheapskate. And she says yes. And so my grandmother was very good at this. Good. Uh, is in quotes. Uh, so what she would do is she would start by asking, so I want to get new carpet for the house. And my grandfather's immediate response is, no, no. So they'd fight for a week about that, off and on. And then finally, because my grandmother outsmarted him, uh, he would settle for new carpet for the living room, which is all she wanted in the first place. So she knew she needed to start back here with her negotiations so that, he, so that he would think he actually won when she really won. Now, sometimes it was ugly, though, and, and it created bitterness in both directions. And so he would see her coming, so he'd immediately dig in his heels instead of being generous. He had the money. Uh, 
And then she, because she was bitter about him, would have to start her negotiation way back here to try to get what she She had to manipulate. And so uh, what happens is people learn this competition and the system of either I want to get even or I want to keep score. Well, you got this. I had to laugh, though. This was not a case of bitterness at all. But those of you who know Ed and Martha, uh, he said, I was looking at his tools. He has a pretty good shop. He said, well, when we built the house, uh, every time Martha bought a piece of furniture, I bought a tool. He said, but I finally gave up. I couldn't keep up. So so it was all lighthearted. But sometimes there's that kind of thing with finances. You spend a dollar, I'm going to spend a dollar. You got to spend a night out with the guys. I'm going to spend a night out with the girls. I'm going to, we're going to keep score and make sure everything is even. That is a, a way to real heartache in a, in a, in a marriage. Um, we're not, obviously a lot of things we're not covering. Obviously you can have a selfish person who is abusive with that, but that's why the Bible gives a lot of other instruction about not being that, about being giving and sacrificial and so forth. So, you're going to, here's this take off, put on. Here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to be bitter, angry, uh, have clamor. What's clamor? Clamor is that kind of snarky, always mumbling and grumbling about this and that, griping here, griping there. You never do this. You, by the way, that's another, don't use pejorative language like you always and you never. Hmm? Yeah, well, it's immaturity. What happens when you say, you never say anything nice to me? They immediately think of something they said nice to you. See, you didn't, that's not true. But you know, if you say, you rarely say something nice to me, or you infrequently say, don't say nice things to me, or, you know, however that you, There's different language that's more accurate than other. But if you say, you never and you always, that's usually not true but it, you just exaggerated your case, which means you lost. Or the other case I'll see is where a couple is into something and they're going back and forth. And I'm thinking of one in particular where I think he was right, she was wrong, and I think she knew she was wrong. But she also knew that if I keep at this, he'll lose his temper. If I keep at this, he will explode. And once he explodes, then I can say, see, you don't love me. You're yelling at me. See, now he just lost the argument, right? The thing she wanted, which she was probably wrong about, now he's got to, you know, I better go ahead and, because she's not speaking to me for the next five days because she got her feelings hurt because I yelled at her. So there's all, every one of you know how to manipulate somebody. And sometimes you do it without thinking about it because it's just your habit. But you can do it with pouting. Shouting, threats, um, other ways of getting even, keeping score. There's a zillion ways to manipulate somebody. You, you better know what your way of manipulation is so you can work on yourself, and you better understand what your spouse's way of manipulation is too. Because when you're going to, we're not going to talk about this tonight, but when you learn to have adult conversations with each other, on sunny days, which you ought to have a lot of those, say, you know, I think you were manipulating me last week when you made me that steak dinner and when I got home. And then later that night, you ask, 
such and such. And now we have a new car. <laughs> uh, I'm, again, being lighthearted, but you've got to be able to be honest with each other. And we've, we've talked a little bit about having a time each week where you talk to each other. So let's sit down and talk about hard things and happy things. What am I doing that's making your life harder or that's aggravating you? And what can I do to make your life easier and better? Oh, I don't ever ask that. <laughs> yeah, you do. And then they're going to have to ask the same question of you. Now, this isn't the time to get even, and it's not the time for scorekeeping. It's the time for adult conversation by two Christians who love God and love each other. Um, a little at a time. So, now, what do you put in its place? What do you put in the place of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking? Put all this away from you with all malice. That's bad intent. That's revenge. That's payback. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And boy, this is what the Bible is so famous for. If it would just stop there, it would be hard. But the next thing it's going to say is impossible. Forgiving one another even as God and Christ forgave you. That's the standard. Not just, okay, I'll forgive you, but get out of my sight. Go away. No. I'm going to forgive you the same way God forgave me in Christ. What does Christ do when he forgives us? Does he say, go away? I really don't enjoy your company. Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come here. We're friends. Let's have a meal together. Let's let's go do something together. That's the standard of forgiveness and tenderheartedness. Yeah, but they did. Yeah, they did. Your spouse is going to do some really stupid things, some really dumb things, some really sinful things. And you said, I signed up for that too. Kind of. I knew that. Maybe I don't know it. I know it better now than I knew it then. But here I am, and I'm all in. The the quicker you can resolve the conflicts and restore communion, the happier you're going to be. If you nurse this or feed this fire or get bitter or whatever, you are not just wounding the other person. You are killing yourself, and you're really killing your kids. Your kids ought to have such a great example that when they start life as a husband and wife, they are way ahead of where you started. Isn't that what you want for them? So that by the time you have great-grandkids, they're even better? So, questions, comments? We will go from here to chapter uh, 5 next time. Uh, I don't have a date yet, but sometime in November we'll have another gathering and we'll look at where he starts talking about husbands and wives and different roles. And we will end up talking about um, a couple, we'll specifically talk a little bit about finances, handling money, handling kids, and sex. Those will be the other three specific topics that we will get to. All of those have to do with a communion of love.
All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for the joys that marriage gives us. But Lord, you know that we're sinners and that we regularly know how to foul things up. So help us, Lord, to grow, to be sanctified in our marriage, to be Christ-like, to tell the truth about Jesus and the church, and to be humble and willing to confess our sins and ask forgiveness and to grant forgiveness and to love and be tender-hearted and kind and uh, to forgive the way Christ, the way you forgave us in Christ. So I pray you'd go with each of these that are here tonight and bless them in these labors with a fresh start and a fresh commitment to you and uh, grant us a prosperous week and give us that communion of love that we're called to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. As one of my kids used to say, it may have been Rachel, you're just missed. <laughs>